The reading of the word will begin at uh, 1 Peter. We'll read chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. If you're reading at the Pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find that on pages 1,191. I will be reading the King James Version. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of, the, of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with, rejoice, with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God. And if, the and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. A few years back, an attendee of the Super Bowl was surprised to see that the seat next to him was empty. So he questioned the gentleman on the other side of the seat and asked him if he knew why that seat was empty. And the gentleman on the other side of the seat said, yes, it was for my wife, but she passed away. And, and the guy who noticed the empty seat said, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I have to admit I, I'm shocked that none of your other relatives or friends jumped at the chance to come to this game with you. And, and the, the widower said, I am too, but they all insisted on going to the funeral. <laughs> you know, how people react to difficulty, to difficult circumstances, can vary between them. Have you ever known somebody who, when something difficult happened, reacted to it in, in a way that just didn't seem normal? that just didn't make sense, that was, in fact, strange to you. You see, the way we react to difficulty may vary between us, and that means at times it's going to appear strange. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, the way you react to difficulty is supposed to be strange because it's supposed to mimic Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 real quick, and let me make reference to this verse before we jump into chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, in the midst of Peter giving some instructions to servants, he said this, he said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In other words, Peter indicates that following Christ includes handling difficult circumstances like he did. 
And the way that Jesus reacted to difficulty was indeed strange. So that means the way we react to difficulty must be strange too. This morning, as we continue our study of 1 Peter, and as we keep this focus and this emphasis on the strangeness that Peter talks about, we come to chapter 4, and we're looking particularly at verses 12 through 19, where we are given some insight, some insight into how our reaction to difficulty is supposed to be strange. But if you look at the whole of 1 Peter, you'll discover that he's woven this particular subject all throughout his letter. And based on the whole of 1 Peter, there are four primary ways that our reaction to difficulty is supposed to be strange. I want to share those with you this morning. First and foremost, our reaction to difficulty is strange because we expect difficulties. Now here's the thing. When you expect something, you are less likely to be overwhelmed by it. Think about it. If you know what you're going to get for Christmas, there's less excitement at the surprise. If you're expecting something bad to happen, it's less overwhelming to you. How many of you have had something bad happen, like your car breaks down or something like that, and you said, I knew that was going to happen. Raise your hand if you've ever said something like that when something bad happened. Come on, be honest. This is, this is, this is God's house. We're the body of Christ. We don't lie in here. Come on. We use that terminology because we, we have an anticipation, an expectation sometimes that something bad is going to happen. We're not prophetic. We're not predictive. We just have an inclination that something bad is going to happen. And when it happens, we are less surprised because we expected it. Now, in the grand scheme of things, sometimes it's beneficial to have an expectation because it lessens the overwhelming nature of it. I mean, it's kind of like being an Arkansas Razorback fan. This season, I did not expect my team to win very many games, and they haven't. But because I did not expect it, I am less overwhelmed by the loss to San Jose State in Kentucky than a Georgia Bulldog fan is to a loss to a South Carolina team that lost to a Tennessee team that lost to a Georgia State team. See, it's less impactful for me because my expectations were not nearly as high. You see, when we expect something, it can sometimes be less damaging when it happens. I want you to notice something. Peter spends a lot of time in this letter calling on Christians to expect difficulty. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 12, or excuse me, look at chapter 4 and verse 12, I should say. I'm sorry, let's start there. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you face something difficult. Don't act like it's something strange happening. It's to be expected. Now go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. It's there he uses the phrase, when they speak against you as evildoers. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 3 verse 16 he uses a similar phrase. He says, when you are slandered. In both 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 and 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, Peter uses the word when. Not if. He doesn't say 
if they speak against you as evildoers, if they slander you as if it's a possibility. No, he says when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you as if it's to be expected. See, Peter is writing all throughout this letter using phrases and terminology that anticipates difficulty. I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 already as well, where we're told to follow in Christ's example of how he handled suffering. Now, here's what's interesting about that. It seems to imply that the call to follow Christ includes a call to endure suffering. And that means that followers can expect to face difficulty to some degree. In fact, Jesus anticipated such difficulty when he told Peter and the other apostles way back in John chapter 17, in that last night of his life on earth, after the Last Supper, he said in John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in verse 20, he added this, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So if we choose to follow Christ, then we can expect to face difficulty. That's what Peter is ultimately communicating to us. And the reason we can expect to face difficulty is because the world is going to treat us similar to the way it treated him, if we wear his name. Now jump ahead to 1 Peter chapter 5, and look at verse 9. Peter told his readers that the same kinds of suffering that they were experiencing are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter told his original audience that Christians everywhere we're experiencing difficulty. And while we may not experience the same kind of suffering that they experienced in the first century, the fact of the matter is that all Christians will experience difficulty. Paul said it most plainly in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. He said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, all throughout 1 Peter and all throughout the New Testament, Inspired writers are trying to tell us, hey, expect difficulty. And they're not trying to be specific every time about what type of difficulty. They're just trying to get us to understand that the Christian life faces difficulty. You know, oftentimes when we gather as a body, we enter these doors with a smile on our face and a, hey, I'm doing great attitude. And that's a good thing. I'm not trying to knock that. But oftentimes we try to act like things are never difficult. Oftentimes, we try to cover up the difficulties of our life so that other people don't suspect that things aren't easy for us. Because somewhere in the back of our minds, we got the idea that when you become a Christian, life is supposed to be easier. Why do we think that? Why do we have that kind of mentality toward Christianity? We can expect difficulties because we're Christians. And you know why? It's because we have an adversary. Throughout Scripture, Satan is identified as the prince of demons, Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. The ruler of this world, John chapter 12, and verse 31. The god of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 4. And the prince of the power of the air, in Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 2. Such titles indicate that Satan possesses some degree of power and influence among the kingdoms of men. In fact, we're told in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And because the world lies in the power of Satan, we can expect him to attack anyone who does not bow to his will. And that's the whole idea behind something Peter writes and warns about in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. It's a passage that's probably familiar to you. He says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. In Scripture, a lion is used as a symbol of might and is recognized for its power, its speed, its ferocity. Lions are patient when it comes to hunting their prey. They, want to, they wait to attack an animal when it's at its most vulnerable state. And the lion's primary hunting tactic is to separate its prey from the herd, and then it overpowers the lone creature with its strength. And that's the metaphor that Peter chose to use in reference to Satan. So Peter's statement is a reminder to us that Satan is powerful and dangerous and present in this world. He is looking for an opportunity to attack us. And I believe one of his most successful forms of attack, one of his most successful schemes, to use words from Ephesians chapter 6, is to create difficulties in our lives. Because when difficulties arise, our faith is put to the test. So why do we expect difficulties? We expect difficulties because the devil exists. In other words, the inevitability of difficulty is due primarily to the reality of the adversary. I had fun writing that sentence. Let me say it again. The, inevit the inevitability of difficulty is due primarily to the reality of the adversary. We need to recognize that because Peter did, as he wrote about difficulties in 1 Peter chapter 5 in particular. And so we expect difficulties because Satan is going to attack. He's going to create opportunities to test our faith. And that leads directly into the next reason our reaction to difficulty is strange. And that's because our reaction to difficulty is strange because we know difficulties are beneficial. We know that difficulties can be beneficial. Often we think that Faith is something that we arrive at, a destination, if you will. We think that faith is, something, is a goal you achieve. You get there and you stay there, and, and everything's great. We have this idea, to some degree, that at some point in our life, we'll reach the point where we can say, I've got faith, and it's a final stop. But that's not how the Bible describes faith. The Bible describes faith as something that increases, as something that moves forward. According to Scripture, faith is pursued, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Scripture says that faith is built up in Jude, verse 20. That faith is something that has grown in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Faith is described as something that, that progresses in Philippians chapter 1, verse 25. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, faith is described as something that is added to. It should also be pointed out that the Bible describes faith as something that can decrease. Not only as something that can increase, but something that can decrease as well. And so if, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18, faith is described as something that can be shipwrecked. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, it's described as something that can be abandoned. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, it's described as something that can be denied. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 and verse 21, it's described as something that can be wandered from. All of these biblical descriptions of faith talk about it like it's something that is not stagnant or finalized, but something that develops. 
It can increase and it can decrease. It can move forward and it can move backward. But faith is not described as something that stands still. And for that reason, faith is more like a journey than it is a destination. And in order for faith to progress, in order for faith to, to move forward, and for, in order for faith to increase, Peter indicates that faith has to be tested. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. And you'll notice that when Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised when difficulty comes because guess what? It's coming to test you. And if you jump back to 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 6 and 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And there you'll see that Peter talks about faith tests as something that should be celebrated. Peter said that we should rejoice when we're grieved by various trials, and here's why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that the testing of our faith is something to celebrate because faith tests are necessary for the authentication of faith. And authenticated faith brings glory to God. In other words, it's in the midst of faith tests that we find out who or what our faith is really in. Think about Abraham for a moment. We've been studying him on Sunday nights. Think about that whole attempted sacrifice of Isaac that's recorded in Genesis chapter 22. The very first verse of Genesis chapter 22 where we go into this story, this account of the potential sacrifice of Isaac, the very first verse of Genesis chapter 22 says that after these things, God tested Abraham. And it's at this point in Abraham's life that his faith proved genuine. For the first time, it really proved genuine because his faith in God proved itself to be greater than his ability to understand what God was doing. And the point is that faith is not always going to develop easily. Some way, somehow, somewhere, there's going to be a challenge to your faith. But those that successfully navigate that challenge in the face of such difficulties will authenticate their faith. And that's how difficult situations ultimately prove beneficial to our faith because it authenticates our faith. But difficulties are not just beneficial to our faith, they can also prove beneficial to the faith of others. And that's because our reaction to difficulty is strange when we realize they create opportunities. One of the most popular passages in 1 Peter is in chapter 3 and verse 15, where Christians are instructed to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You've probably heard that passage before. It's a passage that commands evangelistic readiness. But have you ever really paid attention to the specific context of this instruction? Let's look at it together. 1 Peter chapter 3 and in context verses 14 through 17. Peter writes these words. He says, But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense 
to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is providing instructions to servants in this passage. And he acknowledges that facing difficulty is a very real possibility. And he indicates that their attitude in the face of such difficulty has the potential to cause their persecutors to ask about the source of their hope-filled attitude. And the point is this, that how we handle our difficult situations has the potential to create an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And so we have a strange reaction to difficulty because we know that that reaction has potential behind it in the life of someone else. I don't think anybody understood this better than Paul. Paul recognized that his difficult chapters were potential pulpits from which he could talk about God. Take a note of what all he endured in the last few chapters of Acts. If you skim Acts chapter 26, 27, and 28, you'll see that he was unjustifiably imprisoned for two years during the prime of his life with no indication that his situation was going to improve. He was forced to sail to Rome against his own prophetic advice. He was caught up in a hurricane-like storm for several days that was so ferocious that he never saw the sun and moon during that time. He was shipwrecked and forced to swim onto a nearby island. And upon that island, when he went to try to build a fire to help warm everybody up, he was bitten by a viper. That's a pretty bad series of events. But despite those events, several miraculous things happened in the course of that journey. And an angelic vision came to him in Acts chapter 27 and verse 23. All of the passengers aboard that ship survived by way of his own, in accordance with the prophecy that he gave in Acts chapter 27, verse 44 and following. He healed a man's father on that island to which he was shipwrecked in Acts chapter 28, verses 8 and 9. But none of those miracles, none of those delivered Paul from his difficult circumstances, and none of those miracles were requested by Paul in particular. I mean, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. None of those miracles delivered Paul from his difficult circumstances, and Paul didn't ask to be delivered from his difficult circumstances. Paul didn't ask to be delivered from prison in this instance. He didn't ask not to be shipwrecked out on the Mediterranean Sea. He didn't ask not to be bitten by, by a snake. He didn't ask to be delivered from these difficult circumstances, and it's because Paul understood that his difficult circumstances were the catalyst for him to tell others about God. He's in prison for two years, but that gave him the opportunity to share the gospel, to talk about Jesus to some of the most important leaders in Palestine at that time. His shipwreck became an opportunity, or really the storm, I should say, became an opportunity for him to talk to the sailors on board that boat about God. He took bread and he broke it. He fed them, made them get some energy and thanked God in heaven in their presence. And when he was shipwrecked on that island and he was bitten by that snake, he shook it off. 
and the fact that he didn't suffer any detrimental damage from that bite. And he was able to heal a man on that island. Provided him the opportunity to announce that Jesus was the source of healing. See, Paul knew that he must see closed doors as divine detours. And illness was the reason that Paul first preached to the Galatians, in, according to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13. And Paul constantly took circumstances that were difficult, that he didn't want, that he didn't plan for, and found a way to use them for the glory of God. That's a strange reaction to difficulty. And that's what Peter's calling on us to do. That even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Our reaction to difficulty is strange because we realize our difficulties create opportunities. One final thought. Our reaction to difficulty is strange also because we accept the superiority of eternity. Throughout 1 Peter, Peter is constantly reminding his readers of the future. He wants Christians to never lose sight of what their ultimate goal is. So as he addresses present difficulties, he's simultaneously pointing to future glory. Let me show you what I mean. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and you look at verse 12 and 13, in verse 12, as we've already said, he writes this, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. So he points to the present difficulty. But then in verse 13 he adds this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul is, I mean, excuse me, Peter is referencing the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns and rewards those who have been faithful to him. He's saying, don't lose sight of our future glory. And then in chapter 4 and verse 16, Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. If you skip down a couple verses, in verse 17, actually, he talks about the coming judgment. And then in verse 19, he says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, he's encouraging Christians to endure difficulty by placing their trust in what God has promised to do for them who remain faithful in the face of difficulty on the day of judgment. Peter's emphasis on the future is a reminder to Christians that God always has one more move. Despite all of the devil's efforts, God has proven time and time again that he is superior. It's like playing chess with a master. No matter how well you may think you're doing, the, the, the master chess player always has another move. Think about it this way. When Pharaoh trapped God's people by the Red Sea and was ready, assumedly, to slaughter them, God had one more move. When a giant seemed unslayable and all of God's army was terrified and hid from him, 
a young shepherd showed up and God had one more move. When God's people were destined for annihilation, a young Jewish girl became queen and God had one more move. And when the world murdered his son and placed his lifeless body in a tomb, God had one more move. Peter is reminding us that God gets the last move, that, that God's last, and God's last move is to give his people a new life. A new life absent difficulty. See, God promises us an ex eternal existence with no more crying, with no more pain, with no more tears, with no more suffering, with no more death, with no more evil. And the point is that our reaction to difficulty should be strange because we have placed our hope in the one who gets the last move. Imagine with me for a moment that the year 2020 has arrived and it's January 1st of 2020. And it's a terrible day for you. Let's say you have to go to the dentist and undergo a, a, a painful root canal that morning. And on the way home, you learn that your child totaled the car, which you had paid off just one week earlier. And while sitting at home, you get an email informing you that your stock portfolio took a nosedive. And then later that afternoon, your spouse receives a phone call from the doctor revealing that he or she has been diagnosed with cancer. Just imagine that from start to finish, that day was like the title of the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. But that was January 1st. And then imagine that every day for the rest of 2020 was just absolutely terrific. 364 days of nothing but blessing. The insurance company calls, and they're going to reimburse you triple what your car was worth. Now you're able to go buy a new car without financing it. Your spouse's doctor calls back and the cancer diagnosis was incorrect and there's nothing to worry about. You get promoted at work to your dream job and now you're making so much money that you're able to retire five years early despite what happened to your portfolio. Your marriage is ideal, your health is fabulous, your children are never a problem. I know we're dreaming a little bit. And you had a three-month vacation in the Caribbean. Imagine that for the rest of the year, 364 days, it was the exact opposite of the first day. And then on New Year's Eve of 2020, I know we've got a ways to go before that, someone were to ask you, how was your year? I imagine that you'd say, it was great, it was wonderful, it was the best year of my life. And that individual might ask, but didn't it start out rough? Didn't you have a horrible day that first day of the year? And you'd have to admit that, yeah, that first day was really bad. I can't deny that. But when I look at the totality of the year, when I put everything into context, it was a great year. The 364 days made up for the one. And the same will be true in heaven. That's not to deny the reality of your pain and your difficulty in this life. Things might get terrible. You might endure chronic difficulties. 
It might go on for all X number of years of your life, but in heaven, after 54,684,532 days of pure bliss and with infinite more to come, if someone were to ask you, how has your existence been? You'd instantly react by saying, it's been absolutely wonderful. Words can't describe the joy and the delight that, 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 that I feel and the fulfillment that I've experienced here in heaven. And if they said, but yeah, did, didn't your time on earth, wasn't it rough, wasn't it difficult, wasn't it painful? You might be able to think back and say, yeah, that was difficult. But when I put them in context, in light of God's outpouring of goodness to me, those bad years on earth are nothing compared to eternity here in heaven. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 when he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that's what Peter was saying if you look at chapter 5 and verse 10 when he writes this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As we close out this lesson today, let's acknowledge something. You're either coming out of a, a, a difficulty or you're in the midst of a difficulty or you're about to enter a difficulty. See, nobody gets a story that's smooth sailing. Difficulties come and go. You don't always get to choose your circumstances, but you do always get to choose your reaction. And our reaction to difficulty is supposed to be strange because we choose to look at it through the lens of eternity. This morning as we're gathered here and we talk about being strange, maybe you haven't chosen to become strange yet. Maybe you haven't made your reservation in heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe today the most important thing for you to do is to ready yourself for eternity and to make yourself strange in the face of the difficulties that you face. Today you can make that choice by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. And it may be that you're here today and you've made that decision to become strange, and you've made that reservation in heaven, but you've let your difficulties change your focus. Maybe you've let your difficulties remove your strangeness. Maybe you just haven't reacted to your difficulties the way that Christ intends for you to react. And you need to seek forgiveness, and you need to seek help, and you need us to pray. We're here today to help us all stay strange. And if you have any reason to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, Come to me, I am.